Welcome to Defiance, and today I'm talking to Mike Cernovich about his investigation into Jeffrey Epstein, but we do also get into fake news and the education system. Look, I know Mike splits opinion, and I certainly don't agree with everything he has done, but if you want to hear him answer some questions about that before, he's covered it all in his interview with Dave Rubin, which I've added a link to in the show notes. I became aware of Mike because of his support for the family of Ross Albrecht, a case which is important to me. So when I had the chance to talk to him about it, I obviously accepted. I was also aware of Mike because of his investigation into Jeffrey Epstein. So I wanted to speak to him. This is the interview. If you do have any questions about it, do feel free to get in touch. My email address is peter at defiance.news. But before we get into the interview, I need to welcome and thank my sponsor Kraken and their CEO Jesse Powell, who are helping make this happen. Kraken also sponsored What Bitcoin Did, my other show which is dedicated to Bitcoin itself, an act of financial defiance. Bitcoin was introduced to the world in 2009 by a pseudonymous inventor, Satoshi Nakamoto, as a response to the 2008 financial crisis. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. And Kraken is the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient, resolute, defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Yeah, I was glad to get on your radar. Took a year and a half. <laughs> As you said, though, you get a lot of requests. Um, well, I'm, a, I'm definitely a one-man band still because I've, I've tried to work with various people, but what, one thing you'll find on your way up is a lot of people just, they don't realize it's work. It's like, oh, it'll be cool. I'll work with you. It's like, okay, but it's work. It's still work. Everything is a grind. So other, other than my wife who keeps my schedule, I, I just do it all. I've got one who helps me engineer and publish the show, right. but I do everything else. And I, you know, I get people offering to help for free, and I'm mm-hmm. just like, I don't want that because that's another person to manage. I don't have the time. Right. But I'm certainly, so over the last year, the Twitter following has gone up, so it's like 75,000 mm-hmm. just short now. The show's getting a lot of awareness, so I get a lot of, I get two things, a lot of inbound inquiries, right, which is hard to manage, and... You know, a fuckload of trolling, to be honest, which yeah. I don't always deal with in the right way. Like, I, I go into the battle sometimes and always regret it. Mm-hmm. Always regret it. But you've probably experienced that. Yeah, on both ends. Yeah, I've been the troll, I've been the trolled. Yeah. So. Well, I troll as well, but I tend to think mine is a little bit more... I try, try and do it in a way where it's kind of like either intellectual or funny, but right. I get the brutal shit where it's just like personal and fuck you. Right. I would, I would do that too. I, I always <laughs> say that if you're trolling, there's... Three ways to troll a man, and only three ways. Every man is insecure about one area, either how much money he has, how much social status he has, or who you know who he's dating, or money, right? Money, status, fitness. One of those is always what will get him. And so you just got to kind of guess, calculate it. I think there's a fourth one. What's that? It's when people criticize your actual work, your mm-hmm. product. 
I take that personally because I work really fucking hard. Oh, okay. You yeah. need to become more arrogant about your work product then too, yeah. Well, I just, you know, I, I know any hours I put in. I, I've flown like 70 times this year. Right. I'm like putting in the hours. Uh, I'm trying to also be open-minded. You know, I, I don't really hold myself to a fixed view on too many things and I'm, I'm allowing myself to just like water flow with ideas and you know, so I get told I flip-flop or... But what I'm trying to do is introduce different people and different concepts and talk about different things. No, you, you get you, I get that every day, which is, I can't tell if you're pro-Trump or not. I'm like, well, what's the point, doofus? Right? <laughs> the, I don't want you to know what you can, if you follow me long enough, you can kind of figure out what I believe or what I don't believe. But that's not the vibe. The vibe is like, oh, you know, every different kind of point of view or if something's big and it's adverse to whatever your position is. But if it's big and people are talking about it, it's kind of my job to get that to people and then to point out the the counter narrative, right? Where well, they're saying this is big, but they're framing it in a way that's manipulative or dishonest or not fully forthright. Like an example is like the Ross O'Brien case, right? Yeah. Guys in prison, double life sentence. And anytime you mention Ross, people go, Oh, well, he tried to get somebody to murder somebody. You're like, well, okay, no, that's actually fake news. He didn't. That was a false criminal accusation levied against him by the government in order to ratchet up the charges. And then once his appeals were denied, they dropped it. Because, yeah, State of Maryland. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was completely fake, or people don't know how the, the agents who went and got him, they stole Bitcoin, right? All these Bitcoins, people went to prison for that. Nobody even knows that that happened, mm-hmm. that you saw federal agents walking out with laptops and all these Bitcoins. So you talk about somebody like Ross, and, and immediately there's a narrative about him, and some of it's true, some of it's not true, but that's what happens. People get one construct about a person, and then that construct determines who they are. And your job is, I believe, as a podcaster or media figure to just share the whole narratives and say, look, mm-hmm. you might not like Ross. You maybe think he deserves to be in prison for the rest of his life, double life. Maybe you think that. Okay. But if you think that because he tried to hire a hitman, well, you're just wrong. Yeah. You're, you're just, that's just not really what happened. If you think what he did was deserving a double life, at least to know what happened and what didn't happen. And that's, that's my job and I think everyone's job. Well, that's how I first became aware of your work. I did the interview with Lynn about a year and a half ago in Austin, and she was like, oh, you've got to get in touch with Mike. Mike knows about the case. Mike supports us. And then it's obviously over time I followed you on Twitter and followed a lot of your work, actually. And there's a couple of key things I want to get into. you. I really want to get into the Epstein stuff mm-hmm. because there's just so much I don't know, just even going down the rabbit hole preparing for this. And I also want to talk about the documentary mm-hmm. because that framed a number of things in different ways. So, for example, I didn't realize some of your counter-trolling was really just reversing the narrative against Mm -hmm. the liberals, which I thought was super interesting. So I kind of want to get into it all, and we'll see how far it goes. But I definitely want to start with the Epstein thing, Mm -hmm. because first point, I was out in Wyoming, and I was talking to a chap there about the fact the interview was coming up, and he was very excited about it. His point to me was that he felt that you haven't been given the recognition you deserve for that, which you might not care about. But he said, without doubt, you haven't been given the recognition you deserve. You were dismissed by a lot of mainstream media for pursuing it. And then a lot of the credit ended up going to the Herald, who deserve it as well. But he felt like you had been dismissed. Yeah. So what had happened with the Jeffrey Epstein case in around 2000, I don't know when I got into it, 2016, 2017, you realized when you read the record that everything about the case was unbelievable. Oh, there's a guy who was running an international sex trafficking ring, but he pled to state charges for soliciting prostitution 
feds dismissed the case against him and he went to jail, but he didn't actually go to jail. He only did 12 hour days. And you're like, okay, this is, you know, I'm a lawyer. I've done criminal cases. I know all about this stuff. I'm like, this can't possibly be true. It's the kind of thing where somebody tells you that, you're like, get out the phone. No way. And then you realize, oh no, it is true. He got some deal that was incomprehensible to everyone. And it just sounded like such a good deal that you couldn't believe it was real. And it was real. But there was no real way to open those records up. You couldn't go and sue the, the federal prosecutors and get all the information from them. They did respond to a FOIA request here or there, but you couldn't really get the goods, so to speak. What happened is, the because it's your podcast, not mine, I'll use alleged. If it were mine, I wouldn't say alleged. And I'd be like, go to hell, lady. You know, <laughs> I'll see you in court. But and it, because it's yours, I'll say the uh, Jisleen Maxwell is alleged to have been kind of his pedophile madam. And the way the system worked was, you know, Epstein's a 50-year-old man, 55-year-old man. If you're walking around New York trying to hit up 16, 17-year-old girls, they're not going to be very amenable to that. So he would send this woman out around high schools and other areas and say, oh, I know this guy, Jeffrey. He's such a nice man. Can you come in and do a little housework or things here or there? And she would kind of bring them in. I called her like the pedophile madam. Well, one woman, Virginia Roberts, sued Jeslaine Maxwell for defamation because Jeslaine Maxwell said, they're lying about me. I never did any of this. Now there's a civil lawsuit. There you would get the public records. No, it was completely sealed from public disclosure. So I, being a lawyer and knowing all these little levers, so much in life you realize is just about knowing the levers to pull, right? And as you learn more different fields, like a lawyer, a lawyer will know what to lever to pull. So I filed what's called the motion to intervene and a motion to unseal the records. Mm-hmm. First person to do it and the, to get the full records. And the judge denied the motion and went up on appeal. So it was a pretty, pretty big case. And quite expensive as well. Yeah, quite expensive. These things always um, are supposed to be less than they are. And you're litigating with people. Because when we talk more detail, the case took a lot of really weird turns. And so this motion to intervene and unseal was filed. It's not a public record. And I'm, I'm talking to reporters. I'm like, hey, this is a big deal. Like, You don't have to talk about me, but the... Journalistic aspect is there is a public lawsuit happening, but it's being conducted in private, in federal court. That's actually not how the federal court systems are going to work. If you want to keep it private, you do mediation, right? There's arbitration. There's all kinds of ways. This is not the way it works. And so much about Epstein is about pounding the table and this isn't the way it's supposed to work. And no reporter, save for kind of a wonky guy at Politico because he covers sort of offbeat legal stuff. Josh, uh, I forget his last name at the, at the hand, but mm-hmm. but there was really no interest in it, or in, in Epstein writ large, and there should have been, there wasn't, and I was trying to drum up interest, and I was getting interest in my own, you know, my own area, my own niche. So say nobody knew about Epstein, to I got a couple hundred thousand people to know about it. Well, lo and behold, the Miami Herald does some groundbreaking reporting in two thousand and eighteen. Oh, and by the way, the Miami Herald, before they'd done the reporting, they filed their own motion to intervene and unseal. And they said, Cernovich is right. He should have won. We should get the records. The trial court, federal judge, denied their motion as well. So then on appeal, I ended up in an appeal with the Miami Herald, which is kind of a weird, weird bedfellow. So I don't think many people would expect Mike Cernovich and Miami Herald to but be if you but if you're going for the same truth, it doesn't really matter. Right, right. But I, but in terms of, you know, like the movie we'll talk about later, Hoax Movie, is so much of life is narrative. 
And there's a lot of people in media who hate me or try to, they try to caricature me. And there's a real human interest story in there, which is how does this kooky guy, Cernovich, you know, whatever, they, you know, all the things they call me, he's in a, he's in a precedent-setting freedom of the press case with the Miami Herald involving Jeffrey Epstein, but no media coverage of that. So when they would write about the Miami Herald's case, you would see all these articles. The Miami Herald appealed to get these records. It's like, no, 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 I did first. They're in a case with me, and I'm glad they're in it, but you're just watching yourself be written out of story after story after story, and that's probably what the the person you would talk to in Wyoming was frustrated with is it's, it's dishonest. Mm-hmm. I'm here. You don't have to like me. You can call me mean names in the articles, but you're just a fraud and a liar if you're saying, oh, the Miami Herald did this. Like, no, no, no. Like, I did it. They certainly did more. They amplified because they went and did it from a different angle than I did, at least in the terms of the coverage. But it's objectively true that this was my case as much as it was the Miami Herald's. But do you think some of it comes down to the Miami Herald is essentially a clean publication, whereas you're, you're a bit fucking wild, you know, right. you've been involved in some various things, right. you've got political views, you're quite strong views, you're gonna, there's people who are going to get pissed off with you, right? Well, and that's a great point, there, and there's layers to that. So, yeah. for example, when I had a clean-to-the-head sexual harassment case against a member of Congress, Sean Conyers, I knew that if I put it out there, it would just get ignored myself. Mm-hmm. If I just tweeted the doc, it would just get ignored. So I went to BuzzFeed, and I learned that actually from a book I read called Devil's Bargain. It was a book by a Bloomberg reporter on Bannon. And Bannon would say that if you actually get something good and you're perceived as being right-wing, don't break it yourself. Break it with a left-wing outlet. It'll get more exposure because there's these bubbles. So when I had the Conyers case, I go, oh, this is a great idea. I reached out to, to BuzzFeed, and they're like, well, if, if it's real, we'll publish it. I mean, I go, just say that I gave it to you. You don't have to give me, you know, there was no conditions or anything like that. They could write the stories they wanted. And then, you know, they break this big story. And so I learned there's like a lesson there. So me, I'm going to Epstein. Nobody cares. Because why? Because this is the world we live in, where you keep people contained in their little zone, and you treat everybody as if they're one-dimensional, and then the Miami Herald, once they got into Epstein, now because they're left wing, you can talk about it now. So then the Miami Herald starts talking about the sexual harassment angle or the sexual predatory angle. And quite frankly, what they did, and I don't blame this on the reporter, Julie Brown, who's incredible, the, the left wing media loved the Epstein story because they had a hammer on Trump. Because Alexander Acosta, who's the labor secretary, was mm-hmm. a pro- that's the only reason they care. And to me, that, that's why now Epstein's dead. They don't care anymore. There's no coverage. There's, I'm still, Julie Brown and the Miami Herald is still covering it, but now it's become local again. So it became this big, huge national story because they could bludgeon Acosta. Then Acosta resigns. And now they're like, oh, well, there's no really a way for us to attack Trump. So why do we even care anymore? Mm-hmm. And then the chatter died down. So me, when I was going for the records, I was going after Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. Media doesn't really care. No. They find that Trump angle, and now they now they care. Well, the interesting thing is, the day after he died, my first tweet when I heard about it was, "When is Gislin Maxwell going to be arrested?" Right. But there's no interest in that. No interest in that, and there's no interest in a very applicable law. So again, this is kind of lawyer inside baseball. But I knew that when the SDNY indicted Epstein, that they weren't taking the case seriously, and here's why. They limited it to local conduct. Oh, he paid these girls $300 to, to rub him or to rub his body or whatever. And 
I'm a lawyer. The SDNY, they're the smartest lawyers in the country for the most part, the most elite. Every lawyer knows, you learn this in law school, criminal law, the Mann Act. The Mann Act prohibits the interstate transportation of women who are under 18 in interstate travel. And in foreign travel, there's another one, but it's not called the Mann Act. The Mann Act, actually Trump pardoned a guy who was convicted of the Mann Act because he drove his girlfriend across state lines. And it used to be for any immoral purpose. And immoral purpose used to be miscegenation. So it was actually a crime to transport a, for a black man to transport a white girl. But so a lot of people don't know this. If you're the age of consent in California is 18 and Vegas or Nevada is 16, if you tell your girl, oh, meet me in Vegas and she's underage, that's a man act violation. Actually, it's right. actually a federal felony. So Epstein had traveled with women to Paris, to his compound in New Mexico, to the Virgin Islands, to New York, to Florida. The prosecutors, if they had really wanted to do this aggressively, they would have had simultaneous raids on every property. Every property. They didn't. Just, oh, and then they, at the press conference, they said, oh, this only covers his New York behavior. No, 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 no. The Mann Act clearly would apply there. And then you start reading and, and pulling back layers, and you find out there was this huge vault in St. James Island, Little Jeff Island, as he called it. Hmm. Nobody knows what happened to that because, oh, we can't seize it. Sure, you could have if they'd have followed it as a Mann Act. Yep. So the way they charged the case, to me, is highly, highly suspicious. Because the SDNY is known for being quite aggressive. I mean, they went after Dinesh D'Souza because he gave a friend twenty grand or something. They charged him under a law that nobody had ever heard of. Right? These are very aggressive people. If they want you, mm-hmm. if the feds want you, it's terrifying. I mean, they went after a Bitcoin Cash bro because he sold firecrackers that everybody else sold. But he just happened to get on their radar. Right? I think Ver um, Roger Ver. Yeah, yeah, Roger Ver. Just because they didn't like him. That's the way our federal system is set up. If they don't like you, they'll put you, they'll make you a federal felon overnight. Well, with Epstein, you had the Man Act, you had all the stuff, and they didn't charge him for any of that. And that's when I was like, okay, the the conspiracy theories about Epstein being intelligence asset or something are are almost certainly true because even when they did eventually charge him, and of course, footnote, they didn't charge him until what? Until after I won my court case, mm-hmm. right? I win my court case, so now everything is going to become public. There's no more hyper-speculation. Who knows what happened? Magically, what a coincidence, then he gets charged, but the charge conduct is the minimum that he was, could have been charged with. They could have done multiple raids on every property, which they didn't do. Were all the girls over 16? There's some question um, to that. There were some that were speculated to be 14. There were some to be... that We do know that the girls would say, once you graduate high school, he wasn't into you anymore. So there was, it was not junior high, they weren't 12, 13. People try to argue it's not pedophilia, it's hebophilia. There's always these like, to me it's like, okay, you're a grown man, she's 14, you're a pedo. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. Yeah, but yeah, they were usually in the 15 to 17 year old age range. Because I was wondering if they've like, you know, say in the UK consent 16, obviously it varies in the US, you know, he's obviously a creepy guy, right. most likely a pedophile. Was there any kind of like self-justification that, that they're over 16? Well, there's actually been conversations that he had had. This all came out because he was funding MIT, where he would tell people, well, the age of consent in France is 14, you know? Right. 
and he would try to have these kind of debates with people and in America, you're like, 14? Come on, bro. Yeah, no, if on. you want to say 18 or 17 people, can you know, there's always a debate at the margin. You're like, 14? We all agree that that's way too far. And it's not like the girl's 15 and he's 17. Right. The girl's 15 and he's like right. 52, right. whatever it is. It's weird. Right, it's because that's the argument they try to make. The They'll say, well, if it's okay for a 15-year-old boy and a 14-year-old girl to have sex, it's like, come on. You, it's a 15-year-old boy. They're, they do try to make those kind of arguments, and that was what Epstein would do. And it, and it didn't work. So regardless of the the morality or where people come on to the, with the age of consent, there's no question that if she's under 18, you transport her in interstate or foreign travel, those are felonies, and you can get every property raided. So even the New Mexico property, we don't even know if it was raided or it was kind mm. of searched the other day. It was sort of forgotten off the radar. Unless you've really followed it closely, you didn't know there's a property in New Mexico. There's a there there was a vault in St. James. When I read a lot of legal documents, there were CDs that were labeled. Uh, they were redacted, but it would say Mister You know John Doe One with Girl Two, and you realize okay the the theory working theory that I think is by far the most plausible is Epstein made his money by running a blackmail operation because. Court files say now he's worth around $600 million. He claimed to be a hedge fund. Anybody in finance knows if you run a hedge fund, you have things like a prime broker. Mm-hmm. There's, there's infrastructure. There's a paper trail. Who's his prime broker? Nobody knows. What trades did he make? Nobody knows. Did he even have an operation? Right? It's very Bernie Madoff. So Bernie, Actually, ahead. I read about something recently. There was kind of one guy, one company, the guy who owns, oh, what is it? Wexner is who they say. Yeah, but is that... What's the one with all the models, the company with all the models? Yeah, Victoria's Secret. Yeah, it's like yeah. part of that group, yeah. Yeah, they say that, but there's still no trade records. Right. And then and then there was a guy, he's in Ohio now. So I think his last name is Wexner, but yeah. he claimed, oh, Epstein stole money from me. And then people are like, why didn't you sue him for, for stealing your money? Like $10 million, you ain't no fool, right? There's no answer for that. So anytime you kind of look around, there's it doesn't make sense unless you have a better working theory. So my working theory is that Epstein initially had his vices and brought people in who thought they were just going to party with him. He began blackmailing them. But then eventually the intelligence community got word of that and they said, oh, you know, why don't we bring in foreign people like Prince Andrew and, and flip them and bring in other kind of high-powered people. And then Epstein became a federal asset. That's why his case was handled the way it was handled. Otherwise, there's no other explanation for him getting away with what he got away with. And moreover, for what happened, even again, going back to SDNY, even when he was charged, he was charged under the lowest chargeable conduct. Right. I also heard potentially a Mossad asset. Yeah, people say it, but it would be, if he were uh, Mossad, I would say he would also be with U.S. Because it isn't like the U.S. intelligence community would say, okay, you guys can have him over, you know, we're not going to share him kind of thing. So he would have been a, a U.S. federal asset as well. So you believe it goes that deep, that they'll create an asset and they'll turn a blind eye to all of this because they want to have dirt on a bunch of people? Yeah, black, blackmail material on it. It's compromat. So he run a blackmail operation and on behalf of the U.S.? Well, it, it evolved into that. Ah, okay. So, so the, the way this world would work would be you're a guy... You know, you're you're having these parties, people come over, and then you start to squeeze them. But if you're blackmailing people, then the intelligence community is going to catch word of that. 
either through wiring, either through spying on people, or through being told by someone. It's a very they're they're, they're everywhere. And then they say, "Oh, you're if you're going to run it anyway, do you have anything on so and so, or do you have any kind of compromising material on this other person?" And then they would use him as a source. I've talked to people who, when they went to Epstein's home, there were cameras everywhere. If you know what to look for, yeah. the little in the book, little just there were cameras everywhere in all of his homes. Why? Why would everything be wired? Right, all these different mm-hmm. rooms wired up, and it makes the most sense that he was an um, intelligence asset, and that would explain why. Why a number of things. One is why he got rid of the first first deal he got away with. Secondly, when he was finally charged by SDNY, why they limit it to some chicken shit charges when they could... Tra- trafficking, right? They, that was uncharged because they said really? other people would bring him girls, but they didn't indict any co-conspirator, right? Okay. And there were no... Right, it was just Jeffrey Epstein. And when you read the actual complaint, it's because he paid the girls hundreds of dollars to give him massages. They didn't go after the whole network. Ghislaine Maxwell, for example, wasn't indicted. Other people would have helped him. None of them were indicted. And I was, I've thought, oh, well, that's really suspicious, right? And then, of course, he dies, commits suicide, okay. which... <laughs> I know. I, all right. So let's get into that because, for obvious reasons, it, it kind of like it happened under everyone's noses. Like, we're all watching and it happens. And my initial thoughts were, he didn't seem like the type of guy who would kill himself. He seemed like the type of guy who thought, I can still get away with this. You know, I'll, I'll get some sentence, but it'll be a compromise. I will get out one day. Right. He was a shrewd operator, and he had cards to play. Yeah. You don't, suicide is what you do when you don't have any cards to play. People who had talked to him said he looked fine, his spirits are fine. I think when you study sociopathy... A sociopath doesn't process emotions the way we do, mm-hmm. and they don't feel fear the way a sociopath has been shown. This is why I say, oh, you're going to threaten a sociopath. They don't process fear the way you do. They're like, oh, God, I'm, I'm freaking out. And they like any attention, good or bad. Right, right. So he was a narcissist sociopath, so he wouldn't have been afraid. He knew he had cards to play. He had money in the bank. He could drag this case out for you know God knows how long. He could threaten to release things, and then suddenly he commit suicide, right? Well, how? Well, there was never a press conference. People forget this. One of the the greatest, not to get too meta, but one of the ways that I analyze the world is I pay more attention to the, it's from Sherlock Holmes, a dog that didn't bark, right? There's that famous story where how did Sherlock Holmes solve the crime? And I don't feel bad spoiling 150-year-old short stories. Sherlock Holmes concluded it was an inside job because the dog didn't bark and the dog would have barked at anyone else. So with Epstein, I look at like, well, there was no press conference. If if he committed suicide, used bed sheets, you just have pictures, right? You just you would just you would say twenty four hours later, sorry, I'm falling on my sword here. Here's pictures of him. Here's video. Here's everything that happened. We've never got the video. We never even got a press conference. What happened to him was leaked to the media. Oh, you know, the New York Times is saying, here's what happens. The Post is saying, here's what happened, according to sources. Taken off suicide watch. Yeah. Guards were asleep. Well, we don't know because we've never... And then they say, oh, the cameras were malfunctioning. Yeah. We don't really know what had happened. So the way I look at Epstein is... And this is why, again, I think the best working theory is that he was intelligence asset, is that the him committing suicide, like, nobody believes it. Mm-hmm. So whatever he had was worse than the loss of trust in institutions his suicide created. Even people like you know Eric Weinstein, who's you know kind of a lefty, and he's he goes on Dave Rubin and has done stuff with Peter Thiel and stuff. And 
the last thing he wants anybody to think is that he's a conspiracy theorist. He's a very, like, what you call a legitimate person. Mm-hmm. And he's what I call, like, an I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but type, because they don't even want to be seen that way. Even he, I was following his Twitter, he's like, come on, go after yourselves. You mm-hmm. really expect us to believe this was a suicide. Well, I can't remember who put out the tweet, but somebody put out a tweet that says something like, if this happened whilst we're all watching, they really didn't want him to speak. Exactly. And that's why, again, the working theory that he would have uncovered all kinds of things, shown all kinds of things about British royalty. Saw it. We're talking sovereign money, right? One way, I can't remember why I was thinking of this, but I think I was in an event and there was a, a billionaire or something there. And I was like, you know, so $1,000 to me is what mathematically a million dollars is to him. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is so I'm like, if you're a millionaire, $1,000 is a million, mathematically speaking. But and then, then I started thinking about Epstein. I'm like, he was against sovereign people. We're talking trillion dollars, thousand billions. And you're like, so if you're a millionaire, a billion to a trillion is what $1,000 is to you. And I wasn't even high, it was just more like a mind blowing thing. And you realize if you're sovereign wealth like Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and you have somebody like Epstein. You know, would you spend a thousand dollars to solve a problem? Of course. Will they spend a billion dollars to solve a problem? Of course, right? Yeah. We're talk- we're talking trillionaires. We're talking, you know, with Prince Andrew and the British royal family. They're called billionaires, but we all know they don't. They don't only have twenty billion or whatever fake number it has. And that's that's the level it was. And I think those were the the kind of players who would have been exposed. Well, so the Prince Andrew things obviously got a different interest to me because I'm British you know I'm not a royalist I'm not a fan of the royal family I think it's fucking ridiculous but he's clearly going to get away with everything because he has royal privilege I'm not here saying he's guilty but there's certainly there's certainly a lot of there's a lot of things pointed at him I watched the interview with the young girl I've got it noted down here is that Virginia Roberts Virginia Roberts yeah. yeah so I saw the interview with her and I believed her I just watched it and I thought well, you know it doesn't seem like you're lying like what reason have you got to lie uh, yeah it doesn't feel like he'll ever be investigated. No, they all got away with it. Yeah. This is, you know, there's a, a term on the internet called like black pill where you just become like nihilistic or whatever. And I became black pilled during the bailouts of Wall Street when I saw John McCain and Barack Obama hold hands to make sure Wall Street was taken care of and got to pay off their bonuses and everything like that. That was a very, to me, that was a, a psychologically a trying time because I was somebody who probably believed in that we had a democracy. I believed in these things. And for me, that was my black pill moment. And a lot of people don't want to take that on the Jeffrey Epstein thing. Well, he's something will come out like, no, it's over. He got away with it. All those people got away with it. Prince Andrew, everybody got away with it. Uh, just accept it and then accept that that is the system that we have. And we can either try to reform the system, or but we can't be children. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody, you know, because people would, it's weird. I think they expected me to be the cheerleader to say, no, we're still going to get him. And I'm like, no, he, he, not he is an Epstein, but whoever was above Epstein, they all got away with it in a very Kaiser Soze movement where we don't even know who Kaiser Soze is. And that's because Epstein wasn't Kaiser Soze. No, <laughs> yeah. Ah, you know what? That's kind of depressing, really. I mean, where do you go with it now? You personally, do you, there's no point pursuing the Epstein story itself too much because there's no, there's no measure in it now because he, he's dead. But do you focus on Gislin Maxwell? Is that worth pursuing? Well, the Miami Herald, they're still pulling on threads and everything. So I view it there in capable hands and they can handle it. But it is, it, that's why, you know, the people, the, the joke is it's a black pill because it is a dark, depressing thing to just say, you know, they got away with it. There's nothing we can do about it. 
And even someone like me, who I'm the guy who went after him and nobody else was, it was put myself in a quiet. I was warned actually by a couple of my own friends and the intelligence community that they'd heard chatter about me and I should probably be, you know, careful and da 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 da. And these were they were credible enough that I was I was contacted. And so it isn't fear. I'm not afraid of these people. It's just who are they? Again, who's Kaiser Soze? How are you going to find the Kaiser Soze? Because it wasn't Epstein. And that's where we are. Going forward, the solution is, I don't know. I mean, that's why I, I back anti-establishment kind of people. I back the kind of people who, whatever their politics are, they, they would want to ask those kind of questions, right? They would want to, because if you're outside of the system, you often ask the quote-unquote wrong questions or you do quote-unquote the wrong things mm-hmm. because you don't know what the mores are, you don't know what the cultural indoctrination is. Those are the kind of people that I'd like to see come in. And you notice even AOC, oh, I'm so fired up. She hasn't talked about the Epstein thing. Well, you're independent. So you've got an independent voice. You don't have to really give a fuck about offending anyone. You don't have to follow a narrative. You don't have to worry about the TV ads, which appear in between segments. You're independent. You can say what the fuck you want. But... I don't know. I mean, just on a personal level, I'm now expanding beyond Bitcoin. This is why we're doing this. I've just been out to Taiwan. I interviewed North Korea's most senior defector. And it is in the back of my mind. I'm starting to think, like, if I push the wrong buttons, do do I risk personal safety? And is that something that crosses your mind? Oh, you 100% do. No, there are countries I won't travel to. Okay. So, like I did for recently a pretty good documentary on, not pretty good, good documentary, very good, on Qatar. And how... The, the script people have running now in America is that Saudi Arabia has all this power. They actually don't. They got squeezed out by the Qataris, and Qataris are actually funding a lot of terrorist groups. So would I go to Syria? No. No. Why? It'd be easy to get me there. You know, you can always, if you want to get someone, you can always get them. But it's going to be a lot harder to get me in the U.S. in a way that my people would tolerate, right, with, with continents. Whereas if I'm, you know, I'm in Turkey or somewhere and just... A bus crash, tragic, 18 people die. One of them is Cernovich, and that's the way it is. So yeah, there there will be a time, if you really go hard, where there are just places that you know you wouldn't go because it would be too easy to get you, too easy to get you in a bag. I mean, I'm certainly not going to go to North Korea now after doing this interview. Right, and I would like to go to Iran, actually. It's a beautiful country, so I've seen, or so I've heard, I'd love to go. But I could become some kind of pawn and some kind of foreign policy game just due to my prominence and um, because I'm, you know, support, I'm not, it would be wrong to say I'm anti-regime just because I'm not actually fighting the regime, so to speak, but they would be able to conclude that I wasn't pro-regime and then that would be enough to jam me up. But yeah, it does. If you want to, if you want to run a travel blog, you got to make different choices than we're making. (laughs) Yeah, but... You can still be a target in your own country. I mean, we've seen it in the UK. We've had Russian agents as such coming and poisoning people and they've got away with it. Yeah, luckily in America, this is one reason why I'm not fully um, demoralized is that it's relatively easy to have someone if you have means to be taken out. And that's just not how we do politics here, at least not yet, where political adversaries aren't being killed, like say in Colombia or other other parts of the world, even mm-hmm. Russia, and that's a very nice thing. But yeah, there's there's people, you know, and that's why I would been told with the Epstein thing that they heard chatter about me and everything. You can become, you know, you can become a target. People still speculate that Michael Hastings, you know, his car was hacked or something like that. I'm on that. I'm seventy five, twenty five. It didn't happen, or that he wasn't killed, just because I know that stretch of road, and I know if you have a, 
you're a young man and you're you're on the come up and you're in a Cayenne, push a Cayenne, you're gonna see how far you can take it. You know, mm-hmm. it's just so much in life is about being able to see things from another person's point of view. And that's, I'm like, well, he's a young man. He's hyped up. He's amped up. A, a lot of people in journalism um, abuse stimulants of various sorts, Adderall or modafinil is not technically a stimulant. So, you, you know, you, you have a deadline and you're crank, cranking. And, you know, I used to have an Adderall, I wouldn't say problem, but I used to do quite a bit of Adderall years ago. And so you, you imagine you got a guy, he's on Adderall, he's mm-hmm. got the fast cars. I'm in Rolling Stone, getting generals retired, like I'm, I'm top of the world, bitches, boom, how fast can I get this card that spins out? So that, but that's why I don't, I don't buy the Hastings things. But that, that said, he did make enemies with the CIA, and I had made a number of enemies. For example, the former national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, actually held meetings about me in town halls. Because I was breaking too many stories about you know national security stuff, and I did back away from that scene for a little bit because they were they were trying to get a counter espionage invest- investigation into me. Right. And yeah, so they're they're but the way they get you here is usually with quote unquote lawful processes. So in say like North Korea, they'll just have you killed or taken away or something. In the U.S., they'll just audit your tax returns and say, oh, did you, you know, you, you forgot to misfile that or something. So that was why one thing I did when I found out that I was such a whatever. It's weird when, it's weird when you're, some I'm 42, I never really wanted to be quote unquote famous. So it's weird when you become sort of a thing. If you never wanted that, it's not really part of your identity. You're just like, eh, you know, whatever. But once I became a thing, whatever that means, I was like, refiled all my tax returns and audited all my records and everything. And, and even now, like they they went after me. They were wrong, but they're going. They were they're going through every tax return of mine, and that that's the way they go about doing it. What, what do you think is going on though? Like you know, you you're analyzing these situations, and once you'll get involved in these stories, like do you believe it's just bad individuals who have relationships with other bad individuals, and people are negotiating and deals, or do you believe there's like this weird deep state thing going on? I'm very early in my kind of looking into what's going on with Patrick Byrne, so I don't know too much about it, but what do you believe is going on? A number of things. One is that so much in life is about self-selection, Okay. so Bitcoin has a culture, and the culture generally tends to be like free-thinking counter-establishment. So if somebody goes, how dare you have Cernovich on your podcast? You'd be like, fuck off, bro. Yeah. You know, whatever. Yeah. And that's just part of the culture. So if people try to come in without that kind of mindset, they're naturally pushed out isn't the word, but it's just not going to vibe. And in D.C. is a very uh, transactional, nasty place to be. And unless you're somebody who only cares how you can take advantage of people, how you can exploit people, how you can climb the social ladder and leak on people, betray people. If you're not that kind of person, then you're not going to make it in the intelligence community for the most part. So what's left in D.C. and left in the intelligence community, because you know you watch Homeland, and oh my God, these people are just freedom fighters, and can you believe it? This is, this is fiction. These are people filing memos to the file. Oh, so-and-so came to my office, looked high on drugs. You know, or, or even how Comey did Trump, where... He had his SUV right outside the meeting with Trump, and he's writing a memo, and then everybody assumes that memo is true. Why would that necessarily be true, though? Because if that, they, know how to, they know how to play the game, and that's the kind of people you're dealing with is memo to the file people, I call them. Or you email yourself a thing, oh, I met this guy, and shh, that, that becomes a culture, and they all if – you, if you're not that kind of person, 
it would just be a very passive aggressive, very oppressive place to be. And then of course, through the self-selection, is you're, you're left with people who just aren't very good people and people who all kind of think alike, have all the same political points of views. They all kind of are on a side. So for example, 90% of the intelligence community is Democrat, but not Tulsi Gabbard Democrat. They all hate Tulsi. They're Democrat in terms of like the Uniparty. So they would all like Mitt Romney too. It's, it's, so Democrat, Republican, 90% of them are what you call Uniparty. Are these people going to support our next war? Are they going to support our next regime change? then we like those people and anyone who doesn't is bad and we don't like those people. So it's very interesting once you start lifting the lid on these things. I mean, I don't know, prior to... I'm, a, I'm calling you a journalist, right? Prior to being a journalist, you said you're a lawyer, but I don't know what your life was like, but mine was very, very standard life. You know, I've had my kids, I'd go to work, I worked in advertising, I'd come home, I'd watch TV, I'd go to bed. You hear different conspiracy theories and things, and then I've kind of got, got into the Bitcoin world, and I'm starting to un, kind of take the lid off certain things, and it's a real fucking deep rabbit hole. Well, how old are you? 40. 40, yes, I'm 42. Yeah, you, you're living a different... Um, so again, that's a very... People, like I found Bitcoin, you're in Bitcoin. People who I think that you live many lives in one mm -hmm. sort of end up in these worlds. So I'm 42... Uh, as a young man who grew up quite poor, you know, legitimately poor, you know, I was what you would call sort of a believer in the system. I was, you know, joined the military and all that stuff. Went to college, got the good grades, went to law school. Yeah, I really want to be a lawyer, and I was doing legal scholarship. And then I just became so jaded that I left all of that, and there was a point in my life where all I cared about was, like, being jacked, like, massive. So there's even people who are like, dude, I saw a picture of you, like, the people are photoshopping pictures of you. I'm like, no, that was really my body. Like I was a <laughs> mass monster, you know? And all I cared about was doing MDMA in Cabo and lifting weights and self-development. So then like my book, Gorilla Mindset, did quite well, actually. It's done over 100,000 copies, uh, sold. So I did the travel the world thing, and that was kind of my arc. So I had a, a very serious, very, I'm a good, good American boy, good American legal scholar kind of thing to I'm just a party boy lifting weights and doing mindset stuff, you know, taking steroids in Thailand or wherever in Chiang Mai. And, and, then I, and then I came back and I was still on that kind of mindset kick. But then like everyone else, you were, were all caught and I called the Trump matrix where you just, whether you like the guy or not, you, you just couldn't avoid him. And that happened in about June 2015. So then I go from, I'm in the matrix but everything compounds. All your skills compound, or you know, Scott Adams calls a talent stack, or people before that would call it a skill set. And I just happen to be perfectly aligned for the times. Like I'm a lawyer, so I'm just like when people are threatening me, I'm like, no, you're fuck off. You can't sue me for that. You're just <laughs> yeah. lying. You know, yeah. no, you're just you're you're bullshitter. And I'd done the mindset training, so if you tried to like rattle me, it was a very very hard thing to do. It's like no, I wrote the book on mindset. You know, like I put gorillas on it. You're not you're like you're not going to intimidate me. And I kind of had the look, which was new. Like at the time, all media people were just big, fat-faced people with too much makeup on. And I'm this guy with a little bit of a muscular physique and a little bit of swag and you know, talking a mm -hmm. lot of shit, which was just perfect for the time. And then I just made friends through that world. And then those friends became kind of sources for me and people feeding me information. Then I ended up kind of back where I began. So I began in a very sort of because I would do some legal journalism. So I began doing some legal journalism at like a lower level. And then I became a reporter, literally making a member of Congress resign, literally making the national security advisor hold town halls about me. 
and then I and then I kind of retreated into the, like I did a film and and other things. So yeah, life life is. Um, I don't want to say it's what you make of it because a lot of times life is making you. It has its own sort of idea, but you can live a lot of lives and one life. So I've had a similarish journey, right? So I would say as a child, we weren't poor, but we weren't rich. Both my parents are working class, so engineer and nurse. But, you know, give us the best. I was definitely very, very liberal, definitely a socialist. I would read books. I would try and read Noam Chomsky and gave up. But I would read like John Pilger books about the war machine and things. So I, that's how I kind of grew up. And then I went into adult life. I was working in advertising, had a massive cocaine problem that got out of hand, like got divorced, everything collapsed, and then found Bitcoin. And then I, I like that term blackpilled because I've essentially been blackpilled, right? But it's very hard. I think through life, you can, like you say, you can live many lives and you can change careers. But once you lift the lid, it's very hard to go into reverse. You just kind of want to find out more. Oh, yeah, you can't go... Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's the problem is... That, you know, there's that scene in The Matrix because that's where all these analogies come from where the guy agrees with Mr. Smith to go back into the, the Matrix. Like, But there, you can't. Once you're out and your eyes are open, you can't. And that's why there's a lot of people um, in this world. Like me, I, I gained a bunch of weight, you know. Um, you, most journalists... I got the same. Yeah, no, you just... It rewires you in a way that I haven't fully... Um, figured out yet psychologically like like I mean I'll give you an example so when I became there was just a ton of national scrutiny on me after I broke this big story about Susan Rice and this unmasking that had happened in the spying on the Trump campaign and I remember there's all this media New York Times Washington Post everybody's and I laid down on my bed and I physically felt like somebody was pinning me to, pinning me to the bed and it was like what are these psychological forces at work right I was like but luckily for me I'd had the mindset work to rely on so I knew what was happening and to realize, yeah, it's quite overwhelming because what happens to us now in quote-unquote cyberspace, it's our, our minds might as well be connected to it. There, there is no, it used to be the internet's not real life. You'd go on an internet forum and you know fuck off a little bit and then you'd live your life. And then once you're online all the time, your brain literally becomes rewired. It's like, uh, you read the book Snow Crash? I've just started it. Okay. I've, um... <laughs> It's the pizza delivery guy at the start, yeah, right? Yeah, the protagonist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like 20 pages in. Well, when you read it, you'll see it was prophetic, and you'll go, wait, when was this book written? Wait, this was how long ago? And there are scenes in there where they talk about, you like you essentially plug in, and you put the goggles on, and now you're hanging out in like holographic reality. And the, that's kind of like what we're doing on the internet. You, won't, you go on Twitter, you might not have a goggles on your face, but you're plugging into like holographic reality. And then what's happening to there, what you're reading online is is affecting your psychology, your brain, and, and thus it affects your physiology because psychology and physiology is a false dichotomy. And it, so it does change you. Right, this is going to be a bit of a flip now because there are other things I want to talk to you about. So the documentary, brilliant, loved it. Very interestingly, and I'll get hammered for this by any friends at home, but it's changed my view on Trump for whatever. Not to say I'm more of a supporter, but more making a better attempt to recognize what is the truth and what isn't. But coming over as a British person to the US, this is like my 60th, 70th time. I come all the time, love the country, love coming here. But when I first started coming over, for me, conservatism <laughs> was bad, right? If you were a conservative, you were closed-minded. And if you were a liberal, you were open-minded and you supported, you know, you had an open mind to sexuality and blah, blah, blah. What's happening, the more I come over, the, this is changing. It's actually reversing. If anything, I would say I'm becoming more conservative. 
and I'm becoming very suspicious of the left wing. And that kind of ties into the Bitcoin stuff as well, because I've been learning about the history of like socialism slash Marxism, the differences. But I've spent some time up in Wyoming recently with a conservative Republican. And what I started to realize is that, again, it's, it's similar to what we were talking about before. There's this control in the media, which is, I don't know, it's really kind of fucked up. And so it was really interesting to follow this. But I mean, were there any times where you would consider yourself a liberal or a socialist? Yeah, I was. I would. I would have considered myself a liberal because socially, you know, there, I was always very much like, well, "Why can't two adults get married?" You know, this is just dumb. Or conservatism would be very oppressive because I grew up in a culturally conservative area where you know you couldn't do anything, and everything was weird, creepy. Can't do that. Can't read these books. For even like listening to the Grateful Dead was a real act of rebellion, and I, I grew up in the '80s, so it, right. you know this isn't like these rock and roll kids. And culturally, it was the dominant paradigm was just conservative. Where these the Footloose, right? There's like a famous American movie where yep. dancing is banned. That that was kind of conservative. You you couldn't do anything, and then the left came in and said, "No, we should be able to do some things." And then the left went went from you should be able to do some things to you can only do these things, and you can't do any of these other things. And conservatives, because it's almost like a psychological orientation as much as an ideology, if you're conservative, you're like, oh, okay, everybody gets gay, gay married now. I don't really care, you know, because that's a conservative mindset. Now the left are the authoritarians, where you can't, mm. you can't talk to this, or you'll, you'll hear this, you know, when the podcast airs, how dare you give him a platform? Yes. Oh, right? God, I've had it so many times. And I always say, I don't give anyone a platform. I have a conversation. And I always say, you shouldn't be harmed by the ha having a conversation. You should open your mind up to the knowledge. But it starts to feel very fascist. No, left-wing fascism, left-wing authoritarianism is on the rise where you can't have a you can't, not only you can't have a platform, but most of the things people don't like me for are either misunderstood or they're from like years and years ago. Yeah. So I, I always think it's funny where the left is saying in America, if felons should have the right to vote, they should be able to get jobs. Like, okay, well, I'm not a felon. I'm not actually have no criminal record. But if I've made bad jokes 10 years ago, I should never have a life ever. There's no, so again, there's no underlying philosophy of it where, they say, well, if you commit a crime, you ought to be able to get a job. It's just more like they have that default position, not based on any kind of underlying deep philosophy, but that's just what they've been told to believe is their bundle of beliefs. Well, who was that? Oh, who was the comedian who had the Oscars? That was Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart, yeah. Sorry, I was listening to, I was watching the Dave Chappelle recent Netflix thing, which had a really weird thing around the reviews. I don't know if you followed that. But I was watching that. He was talking about that was the thing Kevin Hart always wanted. He wanted to present the Oscars. That's all it was about. He finally gets it. Someone digs up an old tweet. Yes, perhaps tasteless. But he then loses his opportunity to host the Oscars. And it's almost like you have to have had this clean, perfect history. Like, I haven't. I know I haven't. I've done fucking terrible things in my life and stupid things. But how are we expected to have this perfect history? Yeah, the ultimate societal question is what is a post-redemption world look like and that's what we're becoming is post-redemption so kevin hart the tweets were from 2011 or 12 mm. if he just deleted the tweets that's why i tell people delete all, all my tweets auto delete after 300 and i think 20 days because nobody reads their old tweets unless mm -hmm. they're trying to dig up oppo so if kevin hart had just deleted all those old tweets five years ago nobody would even be mad at him so and this goes back to they're mad at 
not who Kevin Hart is today. They're mad at an image that they have of Kevin Hart from 10 years ago. But it's concern trolling as well, right? Some of it's concern trolling, and some of it is people create caricatures and, and artifacts of people based on what they read yeah. at any given moment. So they'll, they'll hate a person because they see that, and that becomes who they are, their, their mind that says, oh, I thought I liked Kevin Hart, but then I saw I said this thing, and now, now I hate the guy. No, 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 you, you hated Kevin Hart eight years ago and didn't know it. Now you like Kevin Hart because he's, he's, he's changed or whatever. Or the, even with his jokes, like I watched the comedy special joke that got him so bad. It was basically like if I was if my kid were gay, I would throw him in a trash can or something like that. Where they were more mad about the homophobia than the child abuse, right? Whereas me, I was like, well, I, I don't think child abuse jokes are funny, so to speak. Even though I, you get the humor of it, you know, we actually wouldn't literally do that. But that's where that's where people are. They're like they're programmed. Their minds are are very programmed. It's very militant trying to find a reason not to like someone and then they find that reason they want to feel self-assured and a lot of it too is because there's so much economic uncertainty right now it's just the fact that if you're under 30 you got the short end of the draw you know yeah you can just it sucks you know there are ways around it but it isn't like their parents generation where you could kind of get a job and sort of figure it out so you're just any probably a student loan debt and rather than deal with that economic angst you want to get all this moral approbation out of you. But there's some hypocrisy there because there are certain people who talk about prison reform and we should have redemption for murderers and at the same time, they will hold Kevin Hart to account for a tweet from 10 years ago. And it's like, I don't like the hypocrisy there. That's because in, in politics and people don't have an underlying philosophy of why they believe what they believe. <laughs> there's just a bundle of goods. So for example, why is it in America, I was asked people this, why is it that in America, if you're pro-gun, you're probably pro-life or anti-abortion, right? Mm-hmm. There's no reason those go together, right? There's no reason. Or, you know, so you pick out all these political things or the same thing on um, the left. Why would you be pro-choice but anti-gun? Because if you believe in choice and bodily autonomy, why ought a person you know, not be able to own a weapon? The one I have is why would you be pro-choice but anti-prostitution? Right. So you're pro-choice, anti-prostitution, or like with global warming – it's like anthropomorphic, percentric uh, global warming. It's like, okay, so if you're pro-gun, if you tell me you're pro-gun and pro-life, I know that you're skeptical of climate change. Why? There's no, there's no unifying philosophical theme between these. It's just that politics is about allying with people on various issues. And your job as a person who wants to be intelligent is you say, yeah, I mean, why can't I be pro, like I like AR-15s and I also think people pro-choice because I don't think babies should be born into, say, bad homes or something where they might be harmed or, or what, whatever. And, and I think climate change is right. Why can't you have all three positions? But if you don't, yeah. you're going to be like, well, you're going to get attacked for that one position you don't have by one side or the other, and then you have to conform to that side. Well, so I'm, I'm at that point now where I'm thinking I'm just stepping out because there's things I like from the left, there's things I like from the right, and I don't want to just identify with one side. So I, I'm almost becoming apathetic to it. And that was why the documentary was really helpful to me. It opened my eyes to a, a number of different things. So, for example the fake news part with regards to, say, Donald Trump would say, all Mexicans are rapists, right? You know, I'd heard that, but I didn't know the truth behind it. And now I'm starting to get really frustrated at the media. So another example would be the impeachment the other day. So 
I wasn't aware of the history of Fox News until I watched the the Loudest Voice. Have you watched it? The, no. It's the series with Russell Crowe playing Roger Ailes. I didn't even know of Roger Ailes. So I watched that and you know understood that Fox News is conservative. So what I did, was after the impeachment, I read the I read it on Fox News and I read it on MSNBC, and then I just realised this is all it's like information warfare. It's just there will always be two sides for a story, and I don't want to be sucked into that. So it's like, what can I do? The only thing I can do is step out of it, is not watch this and not vote and not become part of it. Yeah, or. Or it becomes like me, it's like my full-time job, so to speak. Yeah, well, that's different yeah. because what you're doing is opening other people's minds to it. Right. Like, I, like there's one example, and you know that's why in Hoaxed Movie, we, we create more of an, an infrastructure on how to think about the world and how to think of media, where it's just a narrative. So one, one classic example, people say, well, Trump made fun of the disabled New York Times reporter. And you're like, well, that sounds pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And, and you can show one clip of Trump doing it in reference to a certain lawyer looks damning. And then you're like, oh, wait, so this is where you want to become more of a, like, I was a big, big fan of Robin Hanson, Overcoming Bias, and uh, Daniel Kahneman and all stuff, is where, like, what's the baseline rate, though? And then, so you always want to look for the baseline rate, and you're like, no, no, Trump's made that gesture 20 times, 20 different people, so it's realistic within the terms of probability that he's going to happen to make fun of a person who, who has that gesture. And then you find out, okay, so he wasn't actually making fun of the guy, or at the very least, there's reasonable doubt because he had done the gesture many, many other times. And you look at how you construct a narrative, and this is what you do in the laws. If you're on one side of the case and I'm on one side of the case, all you're doing is creating a narrative about why I'm 100% wrong. There's no room for rationality because then you look weak. And then all I'm doing is the opposite. And it used to be we would view our media as like an arbiter of truth, so to speak. They're like the judge. And the media's job was to say, well, hold on a second. Here's Trump making that gesture in reference to a New York Times reporter. And then, oh, but here's him making it in reference to Ted Cruz. And here's him making it reference to another Times. And then a judge might just say, is it becoming of a president to do this? You're 70 years old. It's kind of dumb. Maybe grow up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's inconclusive. We don't know that he was actually you know, using it to mock a disability or whatever. But no, 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 no. So this is what you would expect. And it's like, that's not actually what you're going to get. And it's like that, again, on every story with the, the media coverage, again, of Ross Ubrook was very much like, oh, he was drug trafficker. And they were selling children is another yeah. narrative. And oh, and he murder for hire thing. And the media created all that stuff. Yeah. And that's why I think Bitcoin people are a little bit more skeptical of the media because there's something that's called the Gellerman amnesia, which is that you're an expert in one area and you, and you read a newspaper article and you say, this is just bollocks. And then you read the, turn the page and you forget that it was bollocks by the page. You're like, oh, wow, this is completely right. So with crypto people, though, I think there's been so much fake news about crypto yeah. that you're just like, okay, I... I, I the Geller, it's enough to overcome the Gellerman amnesia because it's like every day there's some kind of new lie about it. But do you think you can be a journalist without bias or you should just forget that and just be very honest about your bias like you covered in the film? Yeah, there's, so there's a number of ways to look at it. One is that I bet you if you asked the 100 journalists about Bayesian probability and updating their priors, maybe one would even know. So we... We tend to think that these are sophisticated thinkers and truth tellers and everything. They're about 110, 115 IQ people. So a lot of them, their biases are unconscious and they don't even realize. For example, there, you know, there's confirmation bias and you see a story and you just can't can't get out of it. 
you need a high degree of self-awareness and also a high enough IQ to realize that. Or if you're biased, there is a, a going to be a dopamine response. So if, if you get a – if you hate Trump – and you get a story about Trump that's good, you're just not going to feel the vibe. You're not going to want to work that up, right? Mm. But if you think you got him good, then then your dopamine kicks in, your receptors kick in, and now you're creating this self-fulfilling dopamine cascade, and now you're loving it. So these are just the way bias is trained. So the, the bigger thing is that people who are intelligent and are able to, to, to understand the news is to just think in terms of more of like Bayesians, right? It doesn't have to be 100% one or the other. So for example, I don't know that Trump was mocking the reporter. I would give it a 10% probability he was because I've seen enough clips of him doing that gesture that, but he still might've been, that might've been his intent. But I've seen enough videos that I'm certainly not 100% sure, which half the country is either he didn't do it the other half is he did it, whereas if you just look at things more probabilistically, you're like, ah, I don't know, 10% maybe if we were going to bet on it, you know, what would that, – that's another way I like to think about things in terms of like betting markets. So if we we're going to bet on it, what, what odds would you give me, right? <laughs> and, and that – That'll also clarify your thinking a little bit. Uh, do you think we've, we're focused on the wrong things though, almost in media now? It's, it's like becoming a distraction to the policy work. You know the, the, what people are doing. It's almost become like a personality competition, and I say a personality competition, which is controlled by the media, who are led by their sponsors, and it's just kind of like this weird world now. Yeah, we there was a quote something like, "Television ratings are democratic, and that should terrify you about democracy." I think it's less democratic, but yeah, they're chasing they're chasing like what people want. The New York Times has a record number of subscriptions. The people of Fox News banging the ratings. There are people actually, if you were a right wing talk radio person, you wanted Hillary Clinton to win because your ratings would be two x or three x. Because hate gets more clicks, drama gets more clicks. Every you know, Ryan Holiday wrote about that, and uh, trust me, I'm lying. And in his own journey, you could tell that it becomes jaded. But yeah, if 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 there's a headline that says Bitcoin guy cheats on his wife, everybody's going to click on that, right? Mm-hmm. If you click on it, Bitcoin guy has healthy relationship with wife and no kids. No one gives a fuck. Nobody cares, right? <laughs> so in a way, we're, we're victims of our own preferences. So is it just a case of accept it and build up a tolerance to it? Or should we be trying to get a better media? And can we get a better media? I don't know that we can get a better media, but we can be more skeptical. Uh-huh. So for example... You know, we, we were told Assad gassed babies, you know, we were, yeah. and people were just like, well, I'm not really sure I'm buying it this time. There's a conspiracy theory that, that he, you know, then the media is like conspiracy theory. And people are like, look, man, WMDs, like we've heard it enough. We know you want to invade Syria. And then when you looked in the story, you actually found out that Assad had, was just about to get a bunch of money. So like he just wouldn't do it. And that goes back to. We, we have a conflicting view where we're like, Assad is a madman. It's like, but if you look at him, no, he's actually a rational actor. This is not, same with Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. Gaddafi was a, a quite, they, somebody can be simultaneously um, evil and rational. And this bothers people because of the cognitive dissonance. We're taught rationality is seeking truth, a platonic, and therefore you're loving a person. Like, no, no, no. Like, they're just moving chessboards and they just don't care what happens. So if you, if you understand these dictators that way, you're like, yeah, I mean, Saddam Hussein. And that was a lesson for all of Americans and I think even a lot of British people is that, no, no, he, we might not have liked what he was doing, but what he was doing was rational for his own ends and maybe he had been the rational moves to make in that kind of area or that part of the world. So skepticism, when they want to get us into a war, 
is definitely on high, and we should keep high alert for that. But on the day-to-day stuff, who cares? It doesn't really matter. Well, so actually then both sides of the media benefit from, from a war zone. Oh, yeah, and that's what we... Whether it's politics or actual war. Yeah, well, no, and that was why war was a central... We covered a lot in hoax, and that was why war was part of that act or segment you call it is the year here's foxes we love it bill o'reilly got it got to go to war people on cnn oh this is like beautiful fireworks fire fireworks display why because it's ratings why because we want to watch the bombs the mother of all bombs this is what we want so they're appealing again in, in many ways one of the curses of humanity is being a victim of your own preference or there's a line it might not be politically correct call it like the gypsy curse but you know may you get what you wish for right and this is what we want to watch. And then we get it. We're like, no, but we don't. You know, there's, there's actually human implications to war. We don't, we don't really want it. We want to like watch it happening like as a video game, but we don't want to. We don't really want to have it. It's like, well, that's what you want, and this is what you wish for, and enjoy it. You're watching it. It's yeah. That perverse curiosity that draws Yeah, there was, there was an old blog, one of the, the best blogs of all time, called The Last Psychiatrist. And he, uh, it's hard to explain. It was mind-blowingly deep stuff. And one of his lines was, if you're watching it, it's for you. People go, what's that mean? Well, you're, um, I can't believe this. This is garbage. It's like, okay, but you're watching it. That was, this is for you. That's, that's why you're watching it. And then you realize you have to take more responsibility for your life. So when people tell me, oh, I watched that and maybe depressed, I'm like, okay, then they knew it would make you depressed. That's why they gave it to you. You must have wanted to watch it. No, I didn't want to watch it. And then it even ties into like Earl Nightingale. There's, I think it was called the, either the strangest secret in the world or the saddest secret in the world, which is that whatever you're doing or wherever you are is exactly where you want to be. And that, that quite offends people, especially if they're not in a good place in life. Yeah, I'm just processing that, but yeah, yeah. you're right, yeah. Yeah, it's like that's where, you, that's where you want to be, and that's why it's called the strangest or saddest secret is that's your life. That's what you want your life to be. How dare you say that? It's like, what are you, you know, what are you going to do to change it then, right? Yeah, that resonates with me on a number of levels. Like, okay... I'm here doing this interview now, and I love it because I want to be. I think I should probably drink less, you know, but I keep drinking because I want to be because I make the choice at that time to do it. And you can take that to an extent. You know, I remember I had this friend when I was a youngster. He used to love watching the beheading videos, right? You know, fucking right. horrible things. But, you know, I watched a couple with him, and they, they fucked my head up. Right. But I made the choice to be that. I don't know. I've never heard that term. Yeah, and you, and then part of that is your own internal struggle where – you think, well, I should quit that, but like you brought up wine. I'm the, I'm the same way. I'm like, I just like wine though. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but I've rewired my mind such that I can, I call it, it's, drinking wine doesn't make you a scumbag, but I call it if just be comfortable accepting that you're a scumbag. Because if your self-image is that I'm not a scumbag, I'm this monk-like figure, then you're like, I can't believe I'm drinking wine again. But if you're like, yeah, I'm just a fucking scumbag, you know, <laughs> drinking wine, then you, you don't think that you shouldn't. And and I've actually, I quit at least once or twice a year. I just don't drink for a month and see if I get any kind of like withdrawals. I never do. I'm like, okay, so I know life with wine in my life is better. It just is. I enjoy it, the process, experience, the taste of it. And when I don't drink, and that's weird too, is I don't drink other alcohol. So if we're out of wine, I have some Japanese whiskey maybe for a cigar night or something. I don't tap into the whiskey. But if I tapped into the whiskey, then maybe I'd be a little nervous. You're missing some good whiskey. Yeah. I like a good whiskey sour. Japanese whiskey. I like a, I like a whiskey sour with a bourbon. Oh, then we got to get you into the, the Yamazaki and the Hibiki and the, the premium ja- Japanese whiskeys. So like, where's your worldview at the moment? Because like I say, your life now is probably very different from 10 years ago. 
you know, you've lifted the lid on a bunch of things. Everything's like it's a really fucking crazy world right now. We're potentially or supposedly heading into global meltdown in terms of the economy, global meltdown in terms of the environment. Uh, we've got like this crazy politics situation. What do you make of it all? Sure, I'm. I hold two views simultaneously, which seem contradictory, but they're not. This is. I think being comfortable with an Eastern way of thinking, because the Western mind isn't used to that, which is with paradoxes. Simultaneously, it's the worst time to be alive and the best time to be alive. Yeah, and we've go, got loads of shit and we're yeah. all miserable. Yeah, or, or we're not. You're not miserable, I'm not, but you uh, have yeah. to really work at it to not be. Yeah. So it used to be, there's a concept called like cultural guardrails. It used to be, like I was actually reading a book, uh, Paulo Coelho, he wrote The Alchemist, but he wrote sort of a memoir called Hippie about a, a point in time. And I was reading, there was a French character in there, and he said, oh, yeah, you know, the nice thing about France is if you just show up to work and you kind of do a pretty good job, you can live a nice life. Kind of blew me away, because that's certainly not France now, but it used to be in America, unless you were black, and of course you had very bad, so this is, a, this is of course, too, why there's all this conflict with MAGA, and it's not something that Trump or Trump supporters, I think, take seriously enough. If you say, make America great again culturally that's going to be filtered through like oh so like jim crow because in jim crow if you were black it was over for you right Mm -hmm. but if you were white well you'd go to college or you would go to the factory and you'd marry a sweetheart there was no such thing as like an insult or something like that right so if you just sort of again not to ignore the black experience but just to, to use that as an example is if you just kind of showed up and did the job you'd be all right you you might you wouldn't live a be a billionaire or whatever a millionaire but you'd you'd be fine you're you're not you're fucked. I always tell you it's not going to be fine if you just kind of show up and kind of work. You're fucked. Yeah. It's over for you. You're going to be an insult. You're going to have no money. You're going to be destitute. You're going to be confused. You're going to be mad at the world because all the signals coming to you from the matrix are actually wrong and counterfactual. But if you do break free from that, there there was no like in 2015, I lived and I just grew up poor, digging through trash cans for spare aluminum to sell at the scrapyard. I lived off a blog for like four years, and I lived quite nice off a blog. That that would not have been possible 20 years ago. Mm. 20 years ago, I just would have had some kind of job, or 30 years ago, some kind of job there. I self-published my books. Why? Because no publisher is going to want to deal with me, right? Mm-hmm. You couldn't do that. You want to do a podcast. How do you get on the radio? Is Ed Sullivan going to have you on a show? Nope. You're not. But you really have to to break free from all the cultural conditioning. So if you do that, you like I know guys who live like Roman emperors, like Nero and Caligula would be, you know, other than the, the killing people, you know, they would be jealous because it's like okay, you you you're able to make some good money online. And if you're a single man or even a single dad, kids aren't that expensive. You know, that's one of the the things. It's, it's just if you're not running the rat race, it's not really that expensive. But if you're a single man. Yeah, you, you learn how to hustle a little bit online. You learn how to be broke. You learn how to be poor. You learn how to make a little bit of money. And now you're like 25, 30, 35, traveling the world, doing your thing. And you realize world travel is not that expensive once you get there. It's just a plane ticket. So it's amazing, right? It's never been better. Never been easier. Never been simpler. Yeah, I mean, I can turn up here with two mics. I can record it. I can publish it. I mean, up until six months ago, the first 12 to 18 months, I did it all myself. I engineered it, I published it, I got sponsors, and now I've got a guy helping me. But you can do this. I mean, Joe Rogan can get the same audience, well, a bigger audience than mainstream TV. Sure, but there's a whole, you have to learn how to talk, you have to read a lot to have something interesting to talk about, you have to maybe get knocked on your ass a few times. You know, So there, there's all that rolled into it too. And again, though, it never would have been, you're not handing your resume to the podcast 
Podcast Inc., right? Here's no. my resume. Can I get on air for five minutes? You can really do it and you can try. And that's why it's amazing. But younger people are not educated that way. And they're educated just, oh, just go to college and get a job. That's what they're being told. Like, what does that even mean? What's a job mm. even mean anymore, right? There's no, you're going to change careers. There's all kinds of different pivots. So the, and this is breaking, to, to some degree, it's breaking free. But I would say even today, if you're in America, go to college, get a job, buy a house, right? Those are the three pillars of Western society. You realize, well, go to college. I mean, maybe, maybe not. Are you going to take out student loans and don't even think about going? Yeah. What am I going to do instead? It's like college. I, I don't know how many, because a lot of my mental development, self-development, people are looking at me like, what if I don't go to college? I'm like, is the college going to go away? You can't go in a year? Well, yeah, okay, then it's going to be waiting there for you when you're 19 or 20. So, you know, don't go to college for student loans. Get a job. What does that even mean? Get a job, right? What, what if we told people instead? Skip. It means get a cubicle. Yeah, if you're lucky, right? Yeah. And, and so why, why don't you tell people, don't go to college, re- instead read books and then start a business. Yeah. Don't ever buy a house. Live out of Airbnbs. And then if you have kids and you want a permanent place and for them to form relationships with locals, that becomes... But that's not even on your radar until you're in your 30s is if you're a man. So why are these people 19, 20? And then what happens is that, and this is why you have so much rage, they're like 28. Why don't I have all these things? I've been told all my life I should have. So, well, first of all, you didn't, probably wouldn't want them. You'd probably buy a house. And you'd probably be bored. The mortgage would stretch you out. And you didn't really learn much in college. You'd probably hate your job. <laughs> so what, what, what was the point? But you were told to want all these things, and now people are angry and raging, and this is kind of the mess society's in. God, yeah. It's kind of depressing when you think about it, but I also, I always just, I just see opportunity. Yeah, I, I don't know. Right, there's uh, two other things I wanted to cover with you. One, we're kind of going, going to go back a step, but I did want to ask you about it because it's something I'm learning about now. I can't get away from not talking to you about Bitcoin for a little bit because mm-hmm. it's you know, my background, but uh, I did want to talk to you about Antifa mm-hmm. because I'm learning about them at the moment and it doesn't make any fucking sense to me. It seems like a group of people who just want to have a fight and also there doesn't seem to be enough condemnation about it from certainly from the left. I mean, the right obviously condemn it, but there doesn't seem to be enough condemnation. What's going on with this? Right, so Antifa is a group of soccer hooligans. Is that what it is? Who wraps himself around ideology because the media will sort of give them a press. Right. Or give them a pass. And here's what I mean. I read a wonderful book, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, Among the Thugs, about a, the writer embedded with all of these uh, different soccer hooligan groups and the fights he'd have with the trains and everything. So there's always a desire in human nature to inflict violence. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's unfortunate, but it's part of the nature. And what the left, or rather what people who want to inflict violence have learned is that if you want to inflict violence, then you should not be on the right, you should be on the left, because the media will give you a pass, they won't report on it when you're violent, or if they do, they'll say, well, you're actually confronting white supremacists, so in a way you're you're the good guys, even though a lot of the people are being victimized that didn't have anything to do with it. For example, there's a, a famous case out of Philadelphia where Antifa beat up three Marines, and they beat up a Mexican uh, Marine, and they call them SPIC, which is a quite yeah, yeah. loaded slur in America. No coverage of that other than a local press. So could you imagine if three, there's a group in America called the Proud Boys. Yeah, so could you imagine... Yeah, three Proud Boys, and you know, they've done some hooliganish things too. Could you imagine if they had done that to a Hispanic Marine? Oh, this group is anti-American. Can you believe it? 
But instead, you just you get one little story in the Philadelphia Inquirer about it, that kind of offbeat paper. Otherwise, people would never even know. That's why Antifa is becoming more and more violent because there, there's always going to be soccer hooligans. But usually you take some kind of effort to shut them down or to limit their space. Or if you have them in a stadium, you have them in their own little area. And if they get particularly too rowdy, that's when the, the police come in and kind of crack a few skulls and let them know, like, eh, you know, you guys are going a little too far. But I think we should be looking at if the Proud Boys and Antifa in exactly the same way if they're going around beating people up. It's the same fucking thing. Well, and that was the, the tension is that the Proud Boys would do mutual combat with Antifa who would initiate it. So there was this great video. I mean, this is a case study. But that is like soccer hooligans. But they make a phone call and they organize to meet up. So to me, it's just a bunch of people who want to fight. They, they, oh, don't, well, they, they, they don't stand for anything, really. No, the, well, the Proud Boys, they wanted to fight too, right? That's where my side is a little bit too, you know, like I, I, one thing I always say, let's just not be children, let's be adults and, and talk about what people really want. So the Proud Boys did form as a sort of protection group because these Antifa people were going to show up regardless mm-hmm. to protest Ann Coulter or whatever. So then the, the original Proud Boys was like a drinking club and it was like a few guys. But then as groups grow up, you get the bad actors in there mm-hmm. and it, they didn't purge the bad actors like they should have. Like, oh, no, this guy's actually, like, bad. You, you, you need to not have it. Yeah. So Antifa, they're going to show up anywhere, and they're going to get violent. They're going to get violent on random people, and they, and they are hooligans. And the U.S. media, though, because it's very left-wing biased, they'll say, oh, they're confronting white supremacists. No, that's not actually no, no. what happened at this one. This, those Marines weren't white supremacists. You know, do you, do you support uh, the troops? You know, but... That's where, that's where we are. That's why the media gave... I mean, the media gave Stalin a pass. The media has given... Pol, nobody says, oh, look at Pol Pot. Oh, yeah. Pol Pot is a Cambodian genocide. Nobody ever talks about that. This left-wing ideological-based violence does get a pass. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't see Andy... Is it Andy, Andy No? Andy yeah, Andy No, no yeah. I pronounce that correctly. I don't see him as a white supremacist. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, he, and in a way, they went too far on him. But they're going to end up killing someone. Yeah, yeah. They they bike locked a guy in the head. They've they don't have a body count yet. Yeah. So they've they've done they've cracked quite a few skulls and just by accident a chance. Like for example, the the bike lock professor as they call him Eric Clinton, he hit a guy with a you know, a real proper bike bike yeah. lock. The guy felt the guy could have died, bleeding, yeah, stitches. Yeah. He just got lucky. He just got lucky that you didn't catch a murder route for that. So they will get a death and the problem is that a lot of this could have been avoided if there had been a crackdown. So what would you do then? Should they, are they a terrorist organization? Is it well, that they, bad? Well, uh, so I have two answers to that. One is the, the Glenn Grinwaldian answer, which is that we call everything terrorism, yeah. even if it's not. And it just becomes this like catch-all term. So my answer to that is, if we're going to call the Proud Boys an extremist group, then you have to at the very least use that same kind of terminology on Antifa. Or if we're going to call you know whatever movement domestic extremism or domestic terrorism, then we do have to call it that because terrorism is politically motivated violence. Would be the, the you're you're inflicting violence on people to impact public policy. And then you're like, well, why isn't war terrorism right? That that brings you to a lot of harder questions. But on the micro level, we generally get that if I come up to you and you're walking down the street and I just shove you against a wall because I don't like you, that's not terrorism. But if I shove you against a wall because you're Catholic and I'm Protestant and I'm, you know, with the IRA. Then, you know, that's then you classify that as terrorism. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm wondering about it. Like, you know, I, I understand why some people are liberal. I totally get it. I mean, I've been there myself, right? 
but I don't understand people who claim to be liberal but don't condemn Antifa. It doesn't make any sense. Actually, you, didn't you stand up in front of a bunch of journalists yeah. and called them out for this? Yeah, so I was in the White House press briefing room. Nice. The, you know, reporting from the White House, and once the briefing ended, I said, oh, what, you know, why will nobody ask about violence against Trump supporters and Antifa violence? And the room people just started laughing. Mm. They, they actually thought it was funny. This was before the Steve Scalise shooting, which, again, just by luck, just by luck, nobody died. There mm-hmm. happened to be an officer there who was able to take, to take action. So Antifa, in terms of not killing people, and it's weird because the people who are surviving, you should call lucky, but when there's a dead body, things change like really quickly. E- even, too, with the, the so-called in America, they, they call them the alt-right or whatever, which became some weird thing. It started off as one thing, and then it morphed into something else. Anyone who's conservative or shows any... I'm sure you've yeah. been called it, right? Yeah, yeah, and exactly. Even though I have a, like, a biracial family, and they've... But as properly understood, there were a lot of people who were who were racist and anti-Semitic in in the real term, not as in how that term is tossed around, where you just go to their profile that they say they don't like Jews. It's like, okay, that's anti-Semitic. That isn't it isn't like, oh, I can't criticize Israel, so you're calling me an anti-Semitic because you're saying I have dog. But it's like, no, no, no. Like they're 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 telling you right now that they don't like Jews, so that's anti-Semite. But they before the the Charlottesville whatever fiasco before that woman died they were given a lot more kind of space to operate Mm -hmm. at least by the the social media companies and tech companies where like oh it's just free speech and nobody's died these people are bad and there was always that sense of like nobody's died and that's where antifa is like well they're bad they beat up some people but you know have they killed anybody yet but the day they do kill somebody there's going to be quite a counter reaction yeah I, I i couldn't agree more and it does worry me and i don't understand why there's no condemnation of it where are you on the whole um censorship side of things i did an interview with andrew torber you know gab.com mm-hmm. like really interesting uh, really interesting really enjoyed it there was clearly censorship on twitter i then went and spent some time on gab.com and i just thought it was a bunch of ignorant fucking nonsense i've discussed this with friends of mine and one of mine said look words do have consequences we have a very different approach to censorship in the UK. You know, we're a lot. Yeah, we we have hate laws. Um, mm-hmm. Where where are you on this? I believe they should have a right to exist, but I don't post there yeah. because I'm not. I don't quite like what what I see or how people um, engage or interact. And when it when it comes to free speech, the way I look at it is that you've never had the wholesale slaughter of people in a society with free speech. Stalin cracked down on it. Hitler, people forget Hitler never won a democratic election, right? People, when they, when they read World War II, they like, oh, we hate the German people. They voted in the power. It's like, no, no, no. He, he won a, a small amount of the vote, and then they, the Reichstag fire, then they just took over. And then you're, you're just kind of stuck where you can resist the government, and they'll kill you. And, of course, everybody says, well, I would have. It's like, well, did you resist the government? And they're, like, bombing people, and there's all this collateral damage, you know? So it's a different, different people contextualize things differently. So with Hitler and the Nazis, there was censorship. That's why when people didn't know the Holocaust was happening, a number of Germans didn't. And if they had known, their perception of things would have changed. And the same thing, too, with Stalin and the gulags. Just the regular people kind of had a sense that something was wrong, yeah. something was kind of off, but didn't really quite get known. Or like with China, 50 million people starving. Like you get, you get kind of a sense that things are bad, but you don't really... So you need censorship to impose those kind of views on the people... And you've never, you've never had a massacre in a place where people could talk freely because although I'm not naive about human nature, I don't think you're going to get 51% of the population to agree to, say, Stalin's gulags, 
right? Or to the agree of the German people to agree to what was done to the Romans and the Jews and gays and mm-hmm. all the experiments and everything like that, or even or even with the Japanese. So if you if you do have free speech, it is a a very important stopgap from mass mass genocide. Now, the more challenging issue that I have, and this is because we don't know about it empirically, but so that website 8chan was shut down. 8chan, there had been two people had posted manifestos to the site, and, and one was a copycat, and they were clearly meeting there. So the question that I think is difficult is, what if it's empirically proven that if you do censor a certain category of speech, then lives will be saved, and these massacres can be prevented? And then it becomes because before before all this we just occupied under the assumption that you're always going to get some bad actors, but on balance it's like a net good. And then it's like, well, what if we can limit this certain kind of speech? But then we know that that always creeps over to other types of speech. So there's a long way of saying I think it's very complicated. I think that the, most of the people who are in tech companies get that. The media doesn't because they're monolithic and. Not particularly, these aren't the, the greatest thinkers we have in our world, where you just have to be able to say, yes, yeah, it's very complicated. And, and the tech companies, of course, have data that other people don't have. So I imagine that they know, like, oh, no, you probably, by censoring these people, you're actually not going to stop one thing, or maybe you'll stop another thing, or maybe the government's monitoring them. So, for example, with if you have like a terrorist group recruiting on social media, you know that they're probably going to recruit people. But now you also know that you can get feds embedded in there, mm-hmm. and now you can maybe find out where the headquarters of it are. So it could be like a net good to let them recruit. But imagine you're, you say that. Imagine you say, no, we want, we want ISIS on there because we know they recruit people, but I think that we can stop a few people. Yeah, you can't say it. No, no. So it, but, and, and that's where these tech companies are is that they're allowing a lot of these people on the platforms knowing that they're being infiltrated and – that, but then something like Chrysler's happens, or something like uh, mm-hmm. the Unite the Right, you know, thing happens with Heather Hare, then then it becomes a problem. And the the media trains people to, to focus on discrete examples. So you couldn't say you would you'd never you'd be out the next day the story. But if you said, well, you know, we did the math and we found out by letting these bad actors be online, we're going to get you know ten people get killed. But if we ban them, we couldn't stop this other shooting where fifty people are killed. So just on balance, 40 lives were saved. Even though that's yeah. utilitarian. There, there's a whole philosophical line, like the trolley problem. These are actually, or Ben Shapiro even got that, that problem where they said, and he's Orthodox Jew, they said, would you kill baby Hitler? And his answer was he wouldn't because Hitler at the time was a baby and wasn't who he was. And the whole media world freaked out. You're like, no, no, you learned this in like Ethics 101. You know, who do you kill? What's innocent? What's guilt? And you realize they're more, they're more complicated than people want to admit. And that's where these tech companies are. And that's where I am too on censorship. So as it is now, I, I think it's a net good that you have places where and, – and this too is where monopolistic forces kind of come in. So if there were three Twitters and three Facebooks and three YouTubes, then I would be pro-censorship as to one or two. There should always be a place – that is more censorship resistant. And as long as that exists, then my views would, would change a little bit. But there has to be some kind of outlet. All right, good. Right, listen, I can't let you go without talking about Bitcoin. That's yeah. what I've done for the last 18 months. But I don't, like, I know you've, you've been involved, you have an interest, but I don't know much about it. Like, what's your kind of background to this? Where's your interest lie? Yeah, I, get, I think interest in Bitcoin probably 2015-ish. Okay, good as, time. 
uh, yeah, it was a good time for a number of reasons, and uh, including it was like four hundred fifty or five hundred bucks. <laughs> and the, you know, I, I remember actually my funny Bitcoin story was somebody who I who I, I respect just enough to if they say do this, I do this. Mm-hmm. The person said, "Go buy five thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin." I was like, "Okay." I just so I, I put it on a, a Trezor or whatever. Yep. And I forgot I had it. You know, <laughs> the five thousand dollars. Don't get me wrong; it's still quite a lot of money, but then. And I forgot I had it, and then Bitcoin was at like fifteen thousand. I started like panicking, like, "Where is it? Is it gonna load?" You know, like you're shaking. You know, like don't get me wrong, five thousand dollars is a lot of money, but you're like, "Oh, oh my god!" And you, your hand, you know, I'm up, upgrading my firmware. Shit, do I want to upgrade my firmware before, <laughs> you know, before I do it? So, and then and then you're distributing because you know you'll put maybe ten bitcoins on one keep key and you didn't think anything of it and then you're like now you have 10 keep keys and 10 try and it just became like a whole <laughs> a whole cluster you know because so i can't imagine the people who have like millions of dollars in bitcoin like how much anxiety they have fuck yeah i mean like even when you're transferring like a thousand dollars worth like have i got the address correct even right. though you copy and paste and every time you copy and paste it, it should work yeah you, you do that anxiety but do you do you look into bitcoin like as a just as a monetary item, or do you actually look into it a little bit deeper? Like, because you mentioned censorship resistance with like Twitter, then do you look at it within terms of money? Do you see the benefits? Oh no, I, I yeah, I did a whole podcast a while ago on the like, Bitcoin as a philosophy, just decentralization as a philosophy, and whether or not in Bitcoin too is is being open in disc- full disclosure. So there's there's an idea floating around out there. I don't know I don't know who came up with it or populated it, but there there could be enough people with enough Bitcoin that you could hold it in escrow and then negotiate with like a sovereign and say, Oh, okay, we all want to go to Panama, there's a thousand of us. You know, you can it's not like money where you can fake how much money you have. It's like, no, yeah, here it is. It's the ledger. Yeah, it's there it isn't. And you could negotiate with a sovereign and say, no, 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 like we just things are getting. Because one thing with the US, and I don't know if it's like this in the UK, you can tell me if it is, but I don't hear everybody who is visionary in the US has the same question. So where's everybody going to go? Right? And, and it's becoming a more intensified conversation. People don't sense that the US is the future anymore. And with Bitcoin, there's the idea that you could, you could negotiate with a sovereign and you could do some kind of smart contract and transfer things over as long as certain things happen under certain conditions. And I, I, and I like that idea. I like that idea of decentralization as a, as a way of life, as it isn't the feds dictating how much it's worth. Mm-hmm. It's people outside of sort of the matrix, outside of the system, buying and selling and negotiating in, in a way that's off, again, the, the central authority's power. And then, of course, there's a sense that you can shut down some things, but with Bitcoin, you can never fully turn off the radio signal. Yeah, when you know we had it, one of the first big use cases, obviously the Silk Road, which we've talked about. You know, for me, I was able to buy cannabis oil from my mum when she had cancer, mm-hmm. and also we had it with WikiLeaks when they were switched off by Visa and Mastercard. They could accept payments. We've we've got it now with like North Korea and Venezuela and Iran. They are able to use. Bitcoin to bypass sanctions, so it allows you to get, I guess, get by the rules. Same same thing with South Africa too. Yeah, that's where a lot of people are are putting their wealth, and that's again why people have to become comfortable though with every energy has a top side and a downside, and a, a lot of the times the rules are are dictatorships. If you're in Venezuela, you're in a dictatorship. the The more challenging thing happens is when you're using the Bitcoin to bypass rules that maybe people agree are moral or ethical and. Mm-hmm. And that's a different conversation. The 
the Bitcoin still though hasn't has enough user adoption. You still have to offload it eventually into some kind of currency if you want to spend your money. But and that's what the government's afraid of, and all governments are. Is once there's widespread adoption, you won't have to have that. And then when you do that, you won't. So, so I'll give you an example. Right now, there are a number of people, I think Gab included, who can't get payment processing. Yep. And and you would think, well, how can that be capitalism? Payment processing. There's hundred. The myth of capitalism is that there's a free market competition between all 100,000 payment processors. But he can't get one. There's mm-hmm. not one that could let him. Well, no, because then you realize it's actually Visa or MasterCard that shuts him off. Mm-hmm. And those, those have monopolies. So we live in an era of capitalistic monopolies. With Bitcoin, there's, especially as it becomes more widely adopted, you can make it very hard for a person to, to make it, but you can never shut them down fully. And that's why I'm long Bitcoin is an idea, long of it is a currency. There's going to be more and more of a demand for that. I also like it as an opportunity just to reduce tax receipts for the government. And as more people use Bitcoin, you essentially you defund them to a certain extent. They can't keep printing dollars to fund the war machine or to fund more regulation. I like it as a chance to just, I don't know, just reduce the size of the state. Right, and that's why Bitcoin and media are analogous in the sense that you know a lot of people say, well, it seems bad because everybody has their own reality on social media, their own little peer groups. And I said, yeah, but social media hasn't managed to start a big war like Iraq yet, <laughs> which, which the media did, or the media even did it with the sinking of Lusfania and World War One, and like the, from the U.S., like why was the for, first of all one of the weird things when you read about wars, why was World War One even involving the UK. Well, I guess you're on the same continent. I can mm. get it. Why in the world was the US even doing it, right? Then, of course, you learn currency and you become more cynical about life. And that was all done with the media. Vietnam War, media. Vietnam War would not happen today because of social media. And, and Bitcoin's the same way where even though there are some bad actors who can use it in bad ways, we you have to always balance... This is a mistake people make. You always have to, to balance a choice on alternatives. People act like it's either Bitcoin or no Bitcoin. <laughs> Bitcoin bad, Bitcoin good. You're like, no, no, there's, there's, we know what decentralized monetary policy is. We know how this works. We know how the bailouts work. We know how asset bubbles work. So compared to that, will it be better or worse than that? Well, probably it'll be better. All right, man. Well, look, this has been awesome. What, what's coming up for you now? What are you working on? I mean, you mentioned a book. Any more films? Yeah, my next book, Audacity, How to Go from Nobody to Somebody, talks about mindset, what happens when you make it, the perils and pitfalls, a lot of different ways to view your life. Yep. And I, th- I think you'll, you'll quite enjoy it. I'll get you an advanced copy when nice. I have them. And after that, I, I don't know, because I'm, I'm at the level now where I'd like to do another film, but I want to do something like really big. Okay. I just I don't want to just show up. Hoax I think was really big, so I would want to do a film at the level of Hoaxed or um, even bigger. And people, of course, can watch Hoaxed at hoaxedmovie.com. How complicated was it to do that? That was a lot of work. Yeah, um, intense. Yeah, especially for the editors, and because the, the directors ended up being the editors too, and it's a lot of work putting together a lot of footage, VFX. But they killed it. I was really mm. impressed with it when it turned out. Yeah, it was great. I watched it on Vimeo the other day. I thought it was honestly, I thought it was brilliant. I've actually I've just given a copy to them here. Oh, perfect. Let us use it. Um, any advice for me on going <laughs> early in my journey? Well, a lot of as you as you rise up and you become more famous, you do just have to accept that people are going to believe things about you that aren't true. Uh-huh. And 
be just namaste about it. They're just they're going to believe it. Who cares? And also, you want to avoid the mistake of what if I try to appeal to more people? Because the people who love you, you'll lose them. And the people you try to appeal to were never going to want to have you anyway. So always remain loyal to your base followers. And listen to, especially to if you ever sell, it becomes very useful, is when you have, say, 10,000, 15,000 people who have bought something from you, you can, you can start to cross-reference the hate mail with your customer list. You're like, oh, I'm, my customers aren't hating me. The hate mail is all coming from people who aren't actually customers. So, so know who you're listening to and don't just think that because people are talking to you that they have your best interests in mind or even that they want you to change and change you would help them. They might just be people wanting to throw a monkey wrench into your plans. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Mike. Appreciate you coming up here. Thank you for listening to Defiance and thanks to Mike for agreeing to come on the show. If you do have any questions about this and you want to reach out to me, my email address is peter at defiance.news. 